Reacting to Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, exposes the philosophical lineage of the radical libertarian ideas that have infiltrated modern American political discourse. Her work credits many of these ideas to James M. Buchanan, who is referred to frequently throughout this article. Engaging with these ideas raises questions such as, what does liberty mean? Who has power now? How do we define basic resources? And what is our common enemy? These are important and challenging questions. This article is my wrestling with some of these questions as they occurred to me while reading Nancy's book. The format is quotes from the book followed by my responses to that quote. The article is broken into four broad sections, personal responsibility, surprise agreement, unrestrained capitalism, and democracy. The personal responsibility section has five quote response pairs. The surprise agreement section has one, unrestrained capitalism has three, and democracy has three. The quotes that I've chosen do not represent the extent of the crucial discoveries that Nancy made. If you're piqued by this article, buy a copy of the book and check it out for yourself. Leave a comment below if you like or dislike any of the ideas that I put forward. We have two options as human beings. We have a choice between conversation and war. That's it. Sam Harris. Section 1. Personal Responsibility. Quote, Indeed, rather than sympathize with the plight of black Americans, Buchanan later argued that the failure of the black community to thrive after emancipation was not the result of the barriers put in their way, but rather proof that the thirst for freedom and responsibility is perhaps not nearly so universal as so many post-enlightenment philosophers might have assumed. A country boy goes to the Windy City, page 35. My response. Responsible people work hard. Responsible people try to contribute to their own well-being, the well-being of their families, and that of their communities through consistent effort. The Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was as responsible and freedom-loving a neighborhood as one could find in 1921, two years after James M. Buchanan was born. The assertion that the economic disparity manifested between black and white America in the 20th century was mainly the result of the lack of thirst for freedom and responsibility flies in the face of documented American history. Credit to From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin. Quote, second quote. They should cease focusing on problems of resource distribution, what the field called allocation problems because the very idea that inequality was a bad thing led to looking for remedies, which in turn led the discipline toward an applied mathematics of social engineering. Instead, they should adopt his radical methodological individualism in all that they studied and assume that individuals always sought personal gain, whether in the, economic, whether in the economy or in politics. A counter-revolution takes time, page 96. Response. In my own arguments, I try to focus my animus against gross wealth inequality and distinguish that phenomenon from regular or even helpful wealth inequality. Inequality as a concept isn't harmful in itself. The relative level and consequences of that particular instance or instances of inequality in question are what matter in the final analysis. Without some moderate, healthy inequality, you couldn't have, an, uh, you couldn't have Olympic medal rankings, brand preferences, professional specialization, social visionaries, or basic standards. Some inequality is good and necessary. Gross inequality is viscerally repulsive. Every individual must decide which manifestations of inequality are healthy and which are harmful for themselves. Then we can discuss our varied opinions, find commonalities across our views, and propose legislation. 
Standing against inequality has to be a legislative issue, not just a social one, because greed is a permanent feature of the human psyche, and greediness will have to be levied against as long as people walk and think. The fact that so many people have to go into debt just to live a dignified life, while so few are born into generational abundance, is a problem in need of constant addressing. Quote, he fulminated against financial need as a criterion for college scholarships as a Marxian concept. Warning, need grows without bounds whenever it's severed from a responsibility for acquiring satisfaction through one's own endeavors. Chapter Never, Comp Com Never Compromise, page 131. Response. People should take responsibility for acquiring satisfaction through their own endeavors. Fortunately, the components of the floor on which they stand to begin those endeavors is a collective decision. Resource scarcity is a real challenge. The less scarcity the poorest among us have to suffer, the higher we can collectively aspire. Wealthy people protect their progeny from the innervation of growing financial need as they should. Common and poor people, in contrast, bear almost all of the daily burden of financial insecurity. A federal VAT a 0.2% transaction tax and closing the most gaping tax loopholes will make no meaningful difference in the ability of the wealthy to protect their families from privation. Spreading that help directly to the common and the poor will make glowing and awesome improvements in their lives and have indirect benefits to the lives of the wealthy. $12,000 a year means little to a millionaire. Helping the common with a basic income of that amount would aid wealthy families because, it would, because having a slightly less resource-deprived neighbor means having less, one less budding enemy in the ever-present campaign against gross wealth inequality. Living in the commons is hard enough without our wealthiest neighbors standing on the principle that because some of their recent or distant ancestors acquired transmissible wealth, they are morally entitled to insist that common and poor people are responsible for endeavoring to acquire basic resources while they themselves want for nothing. I define basic resources as a roof, reliable internet access, and enough cash to eat. Offering these basic resources to all of our citizens isn't Marxian, it's decent. Quote, Another impediment to the society's vision of liberty was government-backed health and welfare, which impaired the normal workings of labor markets. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, employer-provided employer provided in pensions and insurance, all of these, all those needed to be phased out, or rather over time converted to individual savings accounts. Chapter, The Kind of Force, page 195. My response. The proponents of individual savings accounts frame their arguments as if they are supporting these ideas individually on their own merits. Credit to article, it's a reference, have to go read it. Uh, credit to Robert LaFour, The Case for Universal Savings Accounts, Washington, D.C., uh, from the Tax Foundation 2019. Uh, let me see, got to go find my place here. But we know that thanks to this remarkable investigation by Nancy, that the thinkers espousing these ideas have almost invariably been trained in the Koch doctrine, usually at Koch-funded institutes like the Heritage Foundation. Credit to that guy Robert's LinkedIn uh, profile page where it shows where he interned at the Heritage Foundation early in his academic career. We should all have our radars up for people pushing this issue and issues like it. 
Buchanan was having an exchange with Henry Mann, the retired of the George Mason School for Law, about protecting the economic freedom of business owners, phrased here as liberty, when government-backed health and welfare were described as impediments to the normal workings of labor markets. Buchanan thinks the normal, optimal workings of the labor market are such that common people have to sell their labor to some owner at some point if that commoner is to survive. He wants common people to have to sell at least some of their attention in order to eat. I don't think common people should have to sell any of their attention in order to eat. I suspect he and I would have to agree to disagree on that point. Quote, the solution to every problem, from young people loaded down with student debt to the care of infants and toddlers and the sick and the elderly, is for each individual to think from the time they are sentient, about the possible future needs and about their possible future needs and prepare them with their own and prepare for them with their own earnings or pay the consequences. Chapter Get Ready, page 221. My response. People are animals. Therefore, there's an ever-present element of competition embedded in living itself. Society is largely an effort to blunt the most fatal effects of those indefatigable conflicts. A band of 100 apes that engages in mortal conflict with every animal it considers an outsider is closer to our base instinctual organization style than our modern nations with several million citizens. That said, primalism is in many ways easier and more natural for us, but it's not better for the long-term survival of our species. The psychological affinity for in-group, out-group thinking is deep and probably permanent. The more we can commandeer those neural systems to produce, uh, to produce in all humans as in-group, off-planet invaders as out-group feeling, the better. Short of an actual alien invasion, we must do that psycho-philosophical work with, co with consistent conscious effort. As a side, I don't think our collective enemy has to be conceived of as a sentient being or beings, but that phenomenon seems to operate with efficient psychological potency. It's apparent to me that James M. Buchanan would let the owner animals outcompete the common animals across generations to the point of popular destitution, widespread desperation, and normalized dependence on the owner's charitable whims. I deeply disagree with that position, and I think most commoners will as well. Still, we want people to get out of their huts and try to contribute to the world. We want to disincentivize grotesque wanton laziness for the common poor and punish posh privileged laziness for the well-heeled. I do understand the importance of hard workers keeping the lion's share of their winnings as fair reward for their differential effort. I define the lion's share as something like the progressive tax scheme, tax scheme tabled below. There will always be winners and losers. The winners can afford to share more than they currently do. The losers shouldn't be condemned to crippling deprivation and st as a standard operating procedure. Underneath, there's a table of progressive tax income brackets. I won't read every one. I'll just say 0% tax up to 24K. Standard tax increases up to about 2 million, I seem to agree. But then I break it apart into differential ever-increasing tax increases above 2 million to 5 million to 20 million to 40 million until you get to 90 million dollars and if for for your 90 millionth and one dollar most of that 90 percent I'm arguing should go back into the public public coffers next section surprise agreement quote the problem with the university according to Buchanan and Devletoglu began with its distinctive structural features one those who consume its product, students, do not purchase it at full cost price. Two, those who produce it, faculty, do not sell it. And three, those who finance it, taxpayers, 
do not control it. Chapter, A World Gone Mad, page 104. Response. I mostly agree with Buchanan and Devlatogu's sentiment here, as I would phrase the di- even as I would phrase as I would phrase the diagnosis slightly differently. Education is not a product, it's an activity. I would phrase the problem this way. Those who pursue university education do not purchase it at full cost price, and those who finance it do not control it. I believe in public education. I attended public schools my entire life. The way that public university education is financed is broken and it's hurting us all. I propose a trade-off that James and, James and I might agree on. In order to bring the cost of education down, I recommend that 18-year-olds not plan to apply to university at all. That's counter to boomer logic, but the world is different now. I recommend that they set up some reliable high-speed internet for themselves, or have their parents help them out with that, decide what topic or industry they want to pursue, get a desk, clear their schedule, and dig in for a couple of years. Many, if not most, will find that the route into their industry of choice requires no university at all. The learners that do decide on university will be the most fully engaged and will likely consider the price of admission worth the sacrifice. As long as taxpayers refuse to prop up inflated prices, loss of demand should drive prices down. Universities will have to cut their non-productive budgets, that is to say most administrators, and focus on activities that bring in active learners, for example, basic research and renowned professors, and activities that actually turn a profit, for example, sports. I do think tax dollars can play a helpful role in university education. However, the role they are currently playing needs to be deeply re-examined. Next section, unrestrained capitalism. Quote, in particular, those waging the campaign sought to make protection and enhancement of corporate private and profits and private wealth with, let me start over, unrestrained capitalism. In particular, those waging the campaign sought to make the protection and enhancement of corporate profits and private wealth the cornerstone of our legal system. Chapter, Large Things Can Start, page 126. My response. I think this passage is important because we, Americans, can see its negative effects popping up every day. The wealthier you are, the more you can get away with. I'm grateful that Nancy has pointed pointed out that this trend is not happenstance. It's the intended desired result of over a century of cunning political strategy. Next quote. Apparently, no one confronted the import of the incentive structure at the outset, for libertarians steadfastly refused to acknowledge wealth as a form of power, but the sheer amount of money Charles Koch was giving would affect all the players in time. Chapter Never Compromise, page 142. My response. How is power currently distributed in our nation? The vote, the arrest, and the buy. The vote is the power to choose which people at which times possess the power of the arrest. The arrest is the power to determine which people are a threat to our common survival and physically separate those persons from the general population against their will. The buy is the power to guarantee proportional amounts of human attention on top of our own will align with your will. Libertarians often recognize the power of the vote and the arrest viscerally but they are frequently hesitant to recognize the power of the buy. Naturally, that is to say, biologically as an organism, my individual attention is the only attention that I can guarantee will align with my will. 
buying power of a living wage, let's say $60,000, means I can guarantee the best part of at least one other person's attention will align with my will for a year. If I had a buying power of $60 million, I could guarantee a thousand attentions for that year. A buying power of a billion means I can align well over 16,000 attentions with my will and still have money left over for Chipotle. Money is power, certainly. It feels like there's a competition between the voting power and the buying power for who controls the arresting power. I push for voting power to control the arresting power every day of the week. That's democracy. Next quote. The new staff had shown terrible judgment in advertising the Chief of Staff weekend retreats, at which figures such as sitting U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and experts from such think tanks as Cato and Reasoned addressed senior congressional staff on a variety of important policy issues while maintaining relevance to the legislative calendar. And, and ordinary web servers web surfers, to say nothing of the IRS employees, did not need to know that the Buchanan Center had been tutoring top legislative staff in such areas as strategies for privatizing Social Security and Medicare, downsizing government, and promoting unlimited campaign spending as a form of free speech. Chapter, The Kind of Force, page 203. My response, giving no weight to legality or illegality, are the weekend retreats described above unethical or moral to a, to a degree that does more harm than good? Who do they harm? What are they good for? Legality and illegality are irrelevant to our considerations about ethics and morality because we live in a nation in which feeding homeless people a deeply ethical act is illegal in several cities and enslaving someone because they've been found guilty of a crime, a deeply unethical act, is sanctioned by the Constitution. Mostly, law, ethics, and morals overlap. Most of the time, an illegal act is a wrong act. Still, public standards change over time. We as citizens are constantly engaged in a tug of war over which behaviors are considered moral and which are not. A single person can only pull the rope so far in a given direction. A movement of unified actors can move the center even further. Institutions funded by billions of private dollars have pushed our popular moral understanding of finance ethics so far off the traditional American map that unlimited corporate donations to political campaigns, an act that was illegal and widely understood as unethical and immoral in the early 20th century, is now not only legal but celebrated in country club dining rooms nationwide. Reference to number four, Powell Ladder, the Tillman Act, which was the act uh, in 1907 that outlawed private campaign, uh, campaign finance from corporations. These retreats and events like them harm the demos and help the oligarchy. Next section, democracy. Buchanan's, uh, quote, Buchanan's Virginia School teaches that all such talk of the common good has been a smokescreen for takers to exploit makers in the language now current to use political coalitions to vote themselves a living instead of earning it by the sweat of their brows. Where Milton Freeman and F.A. Hayek allowed that public officials were earnestly trying to do, the right, to do right by the citizenry, even as they disputed the methods, Buchanan believed that government failed because of bad faith, because activists, voters, and officials alike used to talk, used talk of the public interest to mask the pursuit of their own personal self-interest at others' expense. Chapter, Introduction, A Quiet Deal in Dixie, <clears throat> page 32. My response, 
The definition of liberty, as with every word slash concept, evolves over time. In evolution, whichever expressed traits assist or cause a survival advantage tend to spread and become persistent features. The concept of liberty contains this trait. I have accumulated resource via I have accumulated resource wealth via voluntary trades with consenting mature traders. I have the liberty to do as I wish with 100% of these earnings. From that trait springs taxation is theft. The concept of liberty contains this trait. I don't own you, you don't own me. I have the liberty to pay attention to whatever I want, whenever I want, for as long as I want, as long as it does not infringe on someone else's liberty. In America today, we are engaged in the conflict between the liberty of the powerful buyer and the liberty of the common citizen. Voting and democracy are the most liberating practices with respect to the common person our species has ever seen. The powerful will always assert that their liberty is more important than yours, as they should. The common will always assert that our liberty is more important than theirs, as we should. Society will thrive when peace society will thrive when powerful and peaceful actors, large and small, argue their points in the public eye. By casting doubt on our collective ability to pursue the common good, James has weakened the ability of the common person to fully trust those democratically elected into power and shifted public scrutiny away from the private powers that operate in the shadows. Quote, Buchanan found a way of thinking about fairness in Wixell's work that matched his own inclinations as a man of the mid-century right. Which was ironic because Wixell was a man of the left who had in mind disenfranchised wage earners who were being taxed for the projects of monarchical government in which they had no vote. Chapter, A Country Boy Goes to the Windy City, page 43. My response. I like this passage because I like this passage because it demonstrates one of the limits. I like this passage because it demonstrates one of the limits of human communication. We're all flawed and fallible. The idea that James could so deeply misunderstand one of his intellectual inspirations reminds me to tap the chip on my shoulder more frequently. Next quote. Anyone who tries to expose what this cause is up to must ask herself, will I become the target of similar scurrilous attack? Wouldn't it be wiser to keep quiet? The cadre even has an economics euphemism for harassment to intimidate. They call it upping the transaction, transaction costs for the other side. Chapter, Get Ready, page 232. My response. This final quote is so important because it's a portent of personal decisions that many public thinkers will have to make in years to come. Powerful buyers delight at the prospect of arresting authorities and forcing rules that favor them over us. We will always have the greedy and the lazy with us. Voting keeps the greediest in check, democracy. Trading keeps the laziest in check, capitalism. When traders work to silence voters and vice versa, they're working against themselves. In closing, thank you Nancy McLean for doing this incredibly important work. I believe it's possible and preferable that we argue ideas for the common good as best we can in full light of the public eye and shame those who consciously mask their intentions. We the people can agree on the best standards for liberty, finance, and democracy if we try. It's all hands on deck if we are to survive what nature will inevitably throw at us. It's best we lay our arguments out now.